Hello, fitness, fitness friends. Hello, fitness, fitness. Hello, fitness, fitness. Hello, fitness friends, brothers and sisters in recovery, mental health champions, anxiety warriors, welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Heimerman, and I am not a licensed healthcare professional, not a counselor, not a doctor. No, what I am is a guy with 764 days of sobriety and a guy who's got the gumption to put my story out there. I do, however, have a counselor on this episode of 40,000 Steps Radio. He's also a fellow attention whore. Brian Hazard joins us to celebrate 24 years of sobriety, to talk about his journey. Check this out. He has more sober time than he had years being alive when he got sober. It's a trip. It's a fun story. It meanders. We had so much fun. Your face is going to hurt from laughing out loud. So thank you for being here. Thanks in advance to Brian for joining us. I am looking out the window. It's a beautiful day to get our 40,000 steps in. So let's get it. gang is your insurance policy up to date on your brain because this episode is going to blow your mind buckle up because brian hazard points out that adhd is very much a defining characteristic of him he is uniquely him he is a unicorn (laughs) he's an amazing dude but given the adhd he and I were just barely holding onto the rails at times as our conversation sort of meandered. Eventually, we land on his origin story in terms of long-term recovery and his very brief, in relative terms, time in the throes of addiction. He became an addict at a relatively young age, compared to me at least, when he was just a teenager. And by age 20, he had... <laughs> A hilarious, in hindsight, incident that turned out to be uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And that got him on the straight and narrow after he went through rehab, just like I did. And now here he is today. Uh, You're going to love it. You're going to love it. And I know that's kind of like, you know, when you explain the joke to somebody, I shouldn't have to tell you you're going to love it, but you will. All right. Now, as I mentioned... You know, Brian and I both had to go through rehab. That might not be necessary for everybody who's battling addiction or mental illness. There is a way to find out. It's easy. It's affordable. You need to call my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers. They've got three offices here in Northern Illinois, and they can help you find out the best path to recovery. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. If you're loaded, it's going to run you 80 bucks. That's the max. If you're a veteran and NIU student or unemployed, you're going to get a break. 
My friend Ron Parts and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email DUIBHS at gmail.com. All right, so reach out to Ron, find out where you are in your recovery journey, and the best course of action going forward. Folks, I'm not going to waste any more time. I want to get into this conversation because it is, it's long, and I could not bring myself to... Uh, this is such a terrible term, but it's what we used in journalism. I couldn't bring myself to kill too many puppies. There's too much gold in here, too many laugh out loud moments, too much fascinating stuff. And ultimately it ends on a very sentimental note where, you know, when Brian said that he's celebrating 24 years of sobriety, he just feels lucky. He feels lucky to have his job. And he said the best way to celebrate is to be grateful for the life he has today. You can't beat that, right? You can't beat this conversation, I'll say it again. And this is me chatting with my new bestie, Brian Hazard. Seriously, are you ready for this? Uh, why is it that n I cannot exist in a world where when someone says, are you ready for this? I can't hear like the mighty duck song start in my head. <laughs> Y'all ready for this? Yeah. Well, I mean, cause this is going to be annoying. <laughs> Congratulations. You've reached 24 years of sobriety. How do you feel? Um, well, I, I feel like I had a, uh, all of my capillaries expand all at once just there for a second. Uh, <laughs> there was no preparing you for that. <laughs> uh, you know, so that, that was a thing. Uh, thank you for that. Now, never do that again. Uh, yeah, deal. Okay. Uh, no, it's, 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 it's surreal. You know, like I, I, my active addiction lasted less than uh, five years, right? So what the first time I got high was October 31st, 1992. And the last time I got high was June 16th, 1997. And, uh, and the only reason I know the first time everybody's like, Oh wow, you got the date down. I mean, it was Halloween. It's not hard. It's Halloween, you know? <laughs> right. What were the details surrounding that? How'd that go down? Uh, so a guy who just assumed, cause I was always very hyper, like, you know, so I have, you know, my ADHD is a defining part of my characteristic of my personality, my psyche. Uh, so I've always been very high energy and very hyper. And I think uh, a lot of people just sort of assumed I was on drugs already. Uh, <laughs> and this guy did. Uh, I'm not going to drop, I'm not going to drop his name or anything. I'm, I'm used to doing that. But yeah, he like, you know, I was at a, a, a cast party for a school play. And this guy was like, you know, hey, you want to go outside and, and uh, smoke some, smoke a bowl, I think he said, or smoke some weed. And I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh and uh and so yeah and then the rest was history i i suddenly felt more uh i don't think i felt more in control i just cared less that i wasn't i think i speak for many people when i say that when i first started using 
they were not a problem. They were the, you know, drugs were a solution uh, to mm -hmm. the problem. And the problem was me. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, uh, it came with built-in friends. It came with like a whole culture. Uh, you know, I went home to my brother and I was like, oh man, I feel so, you know, I used to be, I was so anti-drug before that, right? Like not because of any conviction, but just because when you're a teenager, it's cool to, to be strongly opinionated <laughs> about things. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I go home to my older brother and I'm like, oh man, I, I don't know if I, I smoked pot. I don't know. And he, and, and he was like, uh, he was like a creed song. He was like, you know, oh, uh, yeah, that's great. Me too. I, like with arms wide open. Okay. Okay. I did the cowbell and you did the Scott Stapp. I think we're even. Now. Yeah. Well, you better get ready for plenty of horrible uh, references to decades past. I'm, I, I live so far. <laughs> Like, I don't know I can make it through an hour-long conversation without uh, referencing either Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, or The Princess Bride. I'm, I just don't think it's possible. See, but those are all acceptable. There's a line before Creed, and Nickelback is not far on the other side of Creed. Oh, my God. Somebody sent this this uh, meme to me, uh, and it was a, a Nickelback, and it was a like a dog with a, with a giraffe costume on. And underneath it, it said, look at this faux giraffe. And I loved it so much that I actually went into audacity and like recorded myself singing it in harmony. So I have like now this little, this little like <laughs> video clip of showing this and me going, look at this faux giraffe. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a moment to, to find the Nickelback yeah. uh, connection there because I think I, I think my brain out of like self-defense has shut down any memory of Nickelback's music. I mean, listen, as much as people like to shit on Nickelback, let's Don't face do it. it. Don't do it. Don't do it. No, 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 no. I'm not going to, I'm not going to defend Nickelback. <laughs> I'm just going to point out that get, hating Nickelback is similar to being a teenager with strong opinions. Like people just enjoy doing it. Like rancid is that was a thing. And that might've been the worst thing that ever happened to music. Right? Like <laughs> that was awful. It was, was, he wasn't even singing. Like, like he was just dying of throat cancer on and being recorded and then produced. So anyways. Hey, okay. We're going to get back into the, uh, the, the topic for sure. <laughs> However, <laughs> oh, this is going to happen. Yeah. I warned you about the rabbit trails, brother. That's <laughs> but can I, you know, you as a counselor over the past, you know, year and a half or so, you've gotten used to looking at the camera. I have to be honest with you. I gotten so accustomed to not doing that and doing the interviews where we're now looking at the camera. It's deeply unsettling. I know. I know. Making eye contact. So you're doing it on purpose right now. Uh, well, yeah, I'm so I'm not. It's hard for me too. As I usually do my telehealth stuff on my laptop where the camera's mm -hmm. like right, you know, so even if I'm looking at the screen, it, it doesn't look like necessarily I'm not looking. Uh, but this is, you know, this is my, this is way up here. And, you know, I, I got all this gear on. I, it's funny now that we're talking about it. I'm like, when I'm doing my professional work, which is of the utmost importance, I don't use any of this important technical equipment. <laughs> I just talk at a laptop. <laughs> Only for like moments of grab assery such as this. Right. I'm just break like, out your important tell me gear. about your problem. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how I do work. Yeah. Now I'm kicking myself in the ass for not making this a live stream show because that was that moment was pure gold. You screaming at your laptop just now. <laughs> oh wait, is this only is this audio only? 
It is. I put it on is. a shirt for this. Oh, come on. <laughs> I know. I did too. This is, this is my Thursday best. I was, I was in my mouse red. I, I did my hair. I was like, ah. Well, now what this tells me is that you haven't researched the show. No, of course not. I, 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 I... <laughs> I'm so glad this is a safe place for both of us. Of course not. No, I like I I live. I am like just one random neuron fire away from climbing a tree in the backyard. You know, like. Well, I've I've read the uh, I've done my homework, so I've read the Frankenlog like oh, above I, I me felt page. That. So I, <laughs> I felt that, sir. Did you? Yeah, didn't you? yeah I'm yeah. I'm I'm small like that. Well, let me do my homework. Let me look at the about me page on Frankenlog. I don't know what that thing says. Well, I just I only bring that up because <laughs> you don't have you don't have time for anything. <laughs> that makes me sound busier than I am. I think now that I've changed uh, changed careers, uh, changed jobs. Um, it sounded even worse before. Like there was way more on here. But this is where, and I had never even heard of this. This is where bullet journaling was like an absolute lifeline for you in terms of harnessing the ADHD, right? I had no idea what it was. It turns out there's this whole culture. Oh, yeah. Tell us about it, please. Yeah. So Ryder Carroll is the guy that came up with it. And he's a guy that, um, you know, did uh, web work, that type of thing. And he's had ADHD and he was just frustrated with what had existed uh, in the in the world for keeping organized calendars and planners and that sort of thing. And so he had developed a system of his own. And one day he heard somebody at work talking about how, you know, disorganized she felt and she had, you know, the post-it notes and everything everywhere. So they went out to lunch and he showed her how he stayed organized, like the little system. And, you know, the story goes that like when he was done, she was like kind of looking at him funny and he was like embarrassed, like, Oh God, was that really dumb? And she was like, dude, you need to tell people about this. Like, this is, amazing and um you know the rest is history he uh you know he's written a book now he's got you know the website going they actually have a deal with like turn where they produce like you know official bullet journal you know journals mm -hmm. and um and yeah i found it at a time in my life when i was working as a um i found it in 2018 so in 2018 i was a director of, of admissions and outpatient services at Stepping Stones. And I just had way too much responsibility for one person. Like it was a, it wasn't a great setup. And for someone with ADHD, it's kind of hard just to remember to like water the parkway. I got to water the parkway. Uh, <laughs> Wait, wa water, water the parkway. Yeah. Like, so I put some grass. What's a parkway. Oh, hold on. Remind me to water the parkway at 10 AM. Oh, you got a bail by 10? I got it. I'll remind you at 10. No, I, well, I have, to, I have to be, I have a therapist. I just started seeing a therapist like uh, a month ago. Oh. Uh, and uh, so. How's it going? Uh, I like it. It's good. It's It's been a long time. I spent most of my life in, look at us rabbit trailing. Hold on. Hold that thought. So yeah. Oh, by the way, a parkway. That's the grass <laughs> between the sidewalk and the street. I'm so glad I know what to call that now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, that's the parkway thing. Um, but so for someone who couldn't even remember to water the parkway, um, you know, I had, I was, you know, managing two departments and a ton of clinical staff and, uh, was just drowning in details and projects and not knowing how to do it. So the, the first thing that saved my ass was getting things done by David Allen, uh, which was 
one of the top three most important books I've ever read in my life. Uh, but you know, had, warning, it's dry. Like if it, if it's not exactly what you need, you will think that I am insane for recommending this book. You'll be like, God, this is dry. But, uh, after that it was discovering, um, bullet journaling. And I don't even remember, I had heard of it and passed on it. Didn't think anything of it. And you know, you know how it is. It's the same, like with how, you know, what makes us finally get clean, right? Like what, what is, what is the exact catalyst of timing, opportunity, mood, thought, that we finally do the right thing. So I, I, I got into bullet journaling and right away I found one, how amazingly freeing this is and how, how liberate it is to not have to worry about running out of space. And two, even that I was like, but also restrictive because you know, the way that he does it is you have like one line a day for a month to put stuff on. And as a, you know, uh, you know, a professional, that wasn't enough space. That wasn't nearly enough space. So that's where Frankenlog was born. Within within weeks of me starting the bullet journal, I had already started like toying with creating a uh, a variation that would work for me. And so the idea behind Frankenlog was that you can have as many things on a single day in the month without ever running out of you know without you know being very unlikely to run out of space, but also having a place where you can literally just dump things. Uh, immediately without having to worry where they should go. Cause that's one of the biggest points of friction for normal people for, I don't want to say normal, say neurotypical people. Um, but especially for people with ADHD is um, where am I supposed to put this? How, what, where does this go? And the moment that question gets in your head, it ends up not going anywhere. Right. Like we just, we just say, fuck it. And we don't put it anywhere. So. Shut down. Yeah. So, yeah. So it reduces resistance and it sort of makes things smoother and, you know, getting things done, that whole system does too. So between them and then finally reading the seven habits of highly effective people, which I don't know why I waited so long to read that book because it deserves all of the, acc the accolades that it has received. Like, it sounds like it's some book for like old stuffy white executive dudes. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? I think that's um, why I still haven't read it. It's good. And you alluded to it earlier though. Like when I think about a book like that, even still when I think about self-help, even though largely what I'm doing now is kind of self-helpish. Like you talked about that teenage angst or whatever you want to call it earlier, where, you know, you're just a contrarian and rebelling against everything. It wasn't until I was like 30 that I stopped like mocking self-help. And I mean, talk about deflection, right? Did you go through that? Yeah. Well, I mean, think about the irony that like our whole society is based on this idea that you're supposed to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and take care of yourself. And yet we shit on the term self-help immediately. <laughs> like right. you need to, you need to take care of yourself. Oh, like with self-help. No, not that. <laughs> no, not that way. Right? Don't say that word for you're supposed to help yourself, not self-help. <laughs> and in fairness to them, it is not just one, but two four letter words. Right. <laughs> you know, um, and my wife too, she would say like, you know, I just, I don't, she says, Oh, you read a lot of self-help stuff. It was funny is that when, like when I was reading seven habits and getting things done and, you know, driven to distraction and all these books, I was like, oh, I'm reading about productivity and self-development. And then she was like, well, there's self-help books. And I was like, <clears throat> first of all, I felt that, yeah, that's so, that, that cultural, like, no, they're not. <laughs> but then like, but then I was like, well, wait a minute. So what if they are what, like, yeah. what the hell, uh, you know, 
Uh, and, and the other funny thing, too, is that we have all these books that you read by yourself to help yourself. We call them self-help. And then when you look at like 12-step fellowships, which are foundationally not self-help. Mm -hmm. They are fellowship societies of people helping each other. And we call that self-help. So like there's really no de there's no definition. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's sort of like the term nerd where like it used to be the worst thing you could be called. And now everybody wants to be one. Everybody embraces it. Like yeah. the day that I heard somebody say like, I'm kind of a football nerd. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> we have jumped the shark, yeah. right? That's, you do not get to use that word. That is, that is our word. That's, you do not get to do that. That is some bullshit right there. Uh, like if you have never been thrown over the fence, uh, uh, you know, or given a swirly yes. or had your bike wrecked by a handful of cheerleaders, I don't want to hear you calling yourself a nerd. All right. Wait, did that happen? Did the cheerleaders talk about it? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Too dark a place. We could, I mean, eventually we're going to talk about you setting your hair on fire, but oh, I guess there's a line. So good for you. Self-soothing, self-soothing, self-soothing. Yeah, there we go. Good for you with boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the bullet journaling thing came along and, um, uh, it, it you know, Frank and log got popular. Like, you know, I would post about it and people would like it and they'd ask over and over again. So I was like, let me make this easy on myself. I'm just going to make a website that explains it so that, um, you know, people can, you know, can find out about it. And, and then that went bananas. Like the, it got so, uh, it hit so hard and fast. People should check it out. It's frankenlog.com. This is basically your own personal adaptation of bullet journaling that, that that's individualized for you, but God knows that it would work for so many other folks as well. And this is, this is kind of the case in point that life is very much like a la carte and you can tailor make how, how, yeah. how things work for you. Yeah, no, uh, no, totally. So bullet journaling, frankenlog, all this stuff kind of helps you harness your superpower and one thing that really resonated with me about your story, there's a lot of it that resonates with me, but in 2020, you basically admitted to yourself that you hated your job. Yeah, yeah. it was really hard. Um, I had worked a long time in, so, uh, you know, I, I worked in the addictions field. I, I started, all right, hold on, hold on. Let's put this in some sort of timeline. After I got clean, I was volunteering and doing, you know, uh, you know, mentorship with, with people in recovery and going to treatment centers to help out and being of service in those different ways. And, you know, I had a GED. I had never gone to school and my ADHD has always made school a struggle. Even medicated, it's a struggle. And so, and I wasn't medicated at the time. I hadn't taken any medication for anything for the first several years I was clean. And so finally I did. And, you know, I tell people all the time when they say, well, do you think medication is necessary? I, all I can say is that for me before medication, you know, I had a GED and I was an working, doing office work in a roofing company. And after, uh, you know, medication, you know, I have a master's degree in counseling. So yeah, I feel like it made a, a shit ton of difference. I had an opportunity to get into the addictions field, which is very poor paying in case people don't know it pays very badly. I just wanted, like, I felt like I might be good at it and I wanted to do it. So I took like this part-time job, $10 an hour. It was full-time at the time, it was, but it was 10 bucks an hour as a tech at a, at a treatment center, like quit my job. My father did not like this idea, uh, <laughs> but my wife, Jenny is amazing. And she's like, you know, you're not happy. So, you know, it, it won't kill us, you know, give it a try. And that was kind of the starting point. I worked, uh, 
at one place for a few years, and then I got into school to get my associates uh, and my addiction certificate for counseling, became a case manager. What were you unhappy about back then? So back then I was just so unhappy with my, like, is this who I am? Is this what I'm going to be? I'm just going to work in an office. You know, I, I have an a, a, a aptitude for technology. So typing and doing word and that sort of thing. Uh, office work came very easy to me. Um, but you know, I'm smart and I felt like I was bored out of my skull and wasting my time and, uh, that I, that I could be doing more when I got into the addictions field as a tech, you know, I wanted to be a counselor. That was my, my main push early on was I wanted to be a counselor, but what I experienced was so many unhappy counselors that weren't doing well for the clients um, because they weren't doing well for themselves and and they weren't supported. And mm-hmm. somewhere along the line, I had the idea that maybe the best way that I could be of service is to be in a, you know, to be, to be a clinical supervisor, like to help mm-hmm. the counselors, to be able to help others. And so at some point that's kind of where I, you know, my, my angle changed and I wanted to be, and I got there like way quicker. It all happened way quicker than and I'd ever expected it to, you know, I had a case manager job at a task for, you know, maybe a year, year and a half. And then I got a, a clinical supervisor job there. So it was like my first time being a boss and my first real experience being utterly wreathed in imposter syndrome, just feeling like an absolute fraud walking in the door. Uh, and then, you know, I got the job at Stepping Stones as outpatient director, which that was a sweet spot for me. I'll be honest before now, before where, you know, what I'm doing now, that was like the happiest I was. I was, you know, running a department and I felt like I could really support the staff and make a good program and, and, and really change things and benefit clients and, and the counselors. Uh, then I was offered a promotion and, mm, uh, you got promoted out of your strength. I, I did. I got promoted and I don't, so, and to be clear, I regret nothing. I regret nothing. Yeah. Um, it was a good experience. I learned so much. I was given another department. And so now I was running admissions and outpatient. And it was clear very early on that the horizontal span of, of responsibility was too wide for, an, for one person to ever do it well. The best I was ever going to do was mediocre. Uh, and that is a very frustrating and defeating realization. Yeah. Then try getting up and going to work every day and feeling motivated. Right. And, and, you know, the staff and outpatient, cause my office moved down to admissions, you know, they would joke about how often they were being neglected, but there was always a kernel of truth in that, you know, like, yeah, well, yeah. And you're not making widgets at this point, you know, you're affecting people's lives. Right. Right. And it, so that wasn't great, but, but I wanted after a, a, a few years of that, um, the executive director announced he was retiring and that, the clinical director would be taking his place. And all of a sudden there's this possibility of, you know, there's an opening for the clinical director. He had been at that point, he had been clinical director for upwards of 25 years. So this is no small change for the agency. And at that point I was in a master's program, which I had started by the way, because in the back of my head, I thought I need to get my master's because someday I want to be, you know, like a clinical director like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I wasn't even done with the masters yet. I had started, I was like a year or two in when the, all this happened and, and I was, you know, considered for the position they're like, well, you're getting your masters. So you have to do that obviously, but you know, you, you would be the best fit for the position. While I do not disagree that I might've been a best fit for the position. I still don't know that I, that that position was the right fit for me. 
I don't think I was ever great in that position. Like, I, I think I wanted to be, but that brought a whole new level of stuff that I then is when I started realizing what I hate. I hate uh, grants. I hate writing anything. I hate writing proposals for things. I mm. don't like trying to figure out, um, you know, qualitative, quantitative, getting ready for, you know, uh, car surveys, you know, with, you know, your licensing body coming in. It's so far away from what I wanted to do in the first place, which was, you know, help people counsel. Right. And I, and at, at, with those earlier positions, I could say to myself, this is, I'm working at a macro level. Like the things I'm doing is, you know, some people just want to be able to, you know, I would hear people say like, well, if I just help one person, I'd be happy. And I'm like, no, fuck that. I want to help hundreds, you know, like I want to help as many as possible. And in this position I could, but but could I like, that was the problem. Like you talked yourself into that though. I talked myself into it and, and, and I don't have the, like I, my strengths don't lie in that level of uh, administration, right? Like my heart was never all the way in it, but how could I tell myself, like, this is what I had been working for for years. Mm -hmm. Then after, you know, less than two years of that position, I get headhunted from another agency. Mm -hmm. Getting headhunted is fun, and I recommend yeah. it. it was, especially, especially if you're an attention whore. Right? Yeah. Oh my god, it was great. <laughs> I had no interest. I was super mean to them. I didn't want to go. Um, but then they, you know, I named a number that I thought would make them go away, and it didn't. And I was like, okay, well, hold on. Wow. And it seemed like a big opportunity, and and so then I became, you know, vice president of clinical services at the South Suburban Council. And now, you know, there's 80 clinical staff and I don't know any of them. You know, I'm new. I'm coming in. I'm replacing a guy that had been there for 20 some years. There's a new CEO. The old one had just retired. So long and the short of it, if you didn't pick up by all those little clues, it just wasn't going to be a good fit. It didn't. I didn't know what I was getting into. And and the guy warned me. He's like, I don't think you're the right person. For, like the guy who was leaving. He's like, honestly, I don't think you have enough experience. I'm not sure you're the right person for the job. And I'm like, well, we'll see. And I'm like, no, okay. Yeah, you were right. That was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it didn't like speak directly to your soul in the way that what you're doing now is right with, with, is it unbroken family counseling? Am I recalling that right? Yeah. The end of this, uh, try, what is it? Uh, to make a long story short, too late. Uh, is for my master's, which by the way, also, again, you know, these people are giving me this, this job on the condition that I finish my master's. So like, now this is the second job I've gotten that requires a master's that I don't have. Uh, <laughs> and so like I was getting the master's degree to become clinical director. And now I've already left that job and I'm in this other job. And it took me five years to do the master's because I was doing it part-time while working full-time. And um, so for my internship from, you know, my practicum, I had to go uh, I had to do, you know, an internship at some sort of agency and I picked a, you know, a mental health hospital and, uh, you know, cause it's what I was used to working on a floor, working with patients and staff. It was very similar to my rehab experience. And I was just grabbing at the familiar and it was a bad idea because it was boring to me and it was very familiar and I wasn't getting anything out of it. And then COVID hit and the place pretty much just got shut down and, um, cause they had an outbreak. And so now all of a sudden I don't have an internship. And out of mm -hmm. desperation, you know, or, or serendipity, right? The universe is a, an amazing place. A buddy of mine tells me he has a friend with a private practice. You know, he puts me in touch with the guy. So I start doing my internship at this private practice. And like the dopamine burst, like the, like the moment, like this Bruce Willis at the end of the movie realization, you know, like, you know, oh my God, every time I see something red, uh, you know, 
I, you know, I'm a dead person. I like this realization of like, this is what I wanted to do. This is like, I forgot how much I love counseling. I love just sitting yeah. down with one person and talking and, uh, and I love talking obviously. And like the, the, like all of a sudden I realized like, I might be able to do this. Like, what if I could just do this for a living? Like that's entirely possible. But the, the identity crisis of giving up the buildup, you know, and giving up my oh, identity. Yeah. Like I know so many people in the addictions field and like in addictions counseling. And I've sat on boards and gone to conferences. I know everybody. And to do this change is to leap out of that, to lose so many connections and so much like reputation that it was no small decision. I'm working with a friend of mine right now who like reached out to me and, and he was like, Hey, I know you left journalism. How the hell did you do that? Like how, mm -hmm. how did you just change your identity? And mm -hmm. yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, it is work to shift paths, to shift gears. It is, but it's also, I mean, it's, it's not unlike what it's like when, um, here, watch, check out this transition. It's not unlike the transition that's required in your life when you decide to get clean. Mm, there we go. Yeah. See, that's perfect. Let's stop. Let's stop talking like, uh, I'm some sort of professional and get back to being a uh, origin a, story. A, 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 let's be an addict again. Yeah. <laughs> People hear professionals talk a lot and it's great to hear, but at the same time, it starts to blank out. Like you sort of, you can only hear, but this is important though. Uh, this is important because you have the understanding uh, of, of mental health, which kind of begs the question, well, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg for you? You know, you smoked pot when you were 14, but then over the course of the next five years, you know, things perpetuated. Do, do you think, you know, why do you think you were doing that? Was this a matter of self-soothing? Was this a matter of self-medicating? Self uh, I guess kind of describe your descent into addiction for us. I almost didn't hear the last part of that because I was thinking, did he just do the math? Was I 14? I don't think I know how old I was. Was that right? I could have been. I don't know. Anyways, uh, so yeah, I, I, to be clear, I, I absolutely believe that there are people who have addiction issues that do not have underlying mental health issues. I absolutely, mm -hmm. you could have somebody who doesn't have underlying mental health issues who has an injury and they're you know, opioid nutty doctors put him on, uh, you know, a whole bunch of Norco and he gets a dependence to Norco. And so now he mm -hmm. has an addiction issue that is not related to anything other than he took too much Norco. Like I, that's, I truly believe that for some people you can have just a substance use disorder. I absolutely believe that. And, and I think, uh, you know, the DSM five bears that out because it doesn't say like you have to have anxiety or you have to have depression to have a substance use disorder. For me, um, I know now it's seasonal affective disorder because I've been able to put together that I'm never unhappy when it's warm out. When it's summertime, I have no I have no bad memories of summer. But uh, in the winter, I get very depressed. And 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 you know, depression is sub subjective as far as when I say very depressed, I'm curious other people. You know, I'm not like Howard Hughes or anything, but uh, you know, it, it it gets bad. And when I was younger. I think I, I cannot remember whether it was before or after I started smoking pot that I had my first uh, suicide attempt. And it was probably, it's around the same age. I think I was, I must've been around 15, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I, I will often comment that I wear my, you know, my watch on my, my right hand because I'm left-handed. Um, but it's also like, you know, nicely covers up the uh, the, the scar and because 
I like attention, but only only on my terms. Like, yeah, right. you know, the first time somebody was like, "Dude, what happened to your arm?" and I was like, "Okay, nope, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna have that." Countries, yeah, I'm countries. Not, I'm not gonna have that random ass conversation with people every once in a while. You know, that's a little too much, too fast. Well, this is hardly random. So, I mean, you're you're 15. Do you recall like the events leading up to that? Was this just when you're in that tunnel of that it seemed like the only possible option, or what? I. So the ADHD, the hyperactivity aspect of it is a defining part of my life. It was, uh, you know, I struggled having friends when I was growing up. I, um, I really didn't like myself. I can remember all the way back to, you know, first grade, not liking myself, wishing that I would just shut up and settle down, wishing that, you know, trying to get some, you know, get another kid to agree to like hit me if I miss, if I act too crazy after lunch, because after lunch I'd get crazy. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, being, you know, just making up stories, talking nonstop, begging for attention all the time. It was, I think it was very hard for the adults around me. It was, it was also hard for me. And um, part of the reason I think I fell in love with counseling is because counselors were the only adults that were uh, nice to me all the time. Uh, right. Because I got, I was in counseling by the time I was in third grade, I was seeing somebody about not doing homework and failing classes and not paying attention and um, not following through. And so, you know, I had embraced this idea of being weird, that I was weird. I used to say, you know, when I was a kid, I came from the planet weird on. And uh, that was that was, you know, but I didn't like it. I didn't like that. I stood out all the time and that I didn't feel like I had any control over that. So that was part of the problem. You know, my parents divorced when I was younger. My sister was sick. There's there's so many things that like that played into it uh, and like being, you know, middle child who knows how much weight we put into, you know, Adler and his uh, birth order thing, but it was a middle child and my sister was insanely sick and she got a ton of attention. And I think I was attention starved. I think my brother was too, honestly. Um, and, and so living in that, uh, there was a period of time where my sister Sheila was sick and she was in the hospital for many weeks, many weeks. And um, mom would not come home. Like she just would not come home and, and dad had to work. So my brother and I had to like live at other people's houses. Like we were staying at other people from the church communities, like living with them. And these poor fucks are stuck with this super hyper kid. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and they have no idea what to do with me. Um, so, and these people that were like, maybe they might've been like, sort of like friends before we lived with them. But after they lived with me for a while, I think they were oh, no. they're all done being friends. Uh, it was also when I found out that it was weird to be left-handed. Oh, let's do that. Did I do that with you yet? Did we do the left-handed thing? No, I don't think, I don't think so. I have... Are you left-handed? No. Okay. So what, one of my children is though. Poor kid. Okay. Grab, grab a pen. You got it. You got a pen. Okay. Let's try which hand? Left hand. Got it. Okay. Hold it. You're good. Now read it. Oh, snap. Yeah. Oh man. So when you're left-handed, all the pens are upside down. Yeah, I look. I we need to stop. <laughs> I need to go. Li- I need to go lie down for a minute. <laughs> uh, so, but that's the, that's the world when you're left-handed. Every once in a while, you're stymied by some right-handed bullshit. Uh, that like <laughs> the authoritarian yeah, regime. You're just like, what is? Come on, you know. Uh, the story I heard about a guy who went to boot camp and they didn't have like when he when he started, they didn't have any left-handed uh rifles yeah. so like when he's when he's on the shooting range the casings are like flying past his face 
and he would get like dust. He would get like powder dust on his face. So his boot camp name was Casper. Um, oh no! But like, like, so there's all these like, there's way more. Uh, so if you take if you take any group of people in a rehab and ask all the lefties to hold up their hands, you will have a higher percentage of lefties among uh, people in prison, people with addiction. Uh, we die younger. We have way more industrial accidents because all the machines are right-handed. Uh, guitar center is fucking purgatory because like, <laughs> here's a whole building you can't play. Well, Hey, uh, okay. So if you took a sampling of a hundred people in rehab or prison, are you saying that there would be more left-handed people than right-handed people? No, there'd be more left-handed people, uh, than there were in a, a sample of just regular. Yes. Okay. So yeah. dispro- disproportionate then. Right. Uh, okay. so I mean, I would never, ever, 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 ever compare the stress or, or challenges of being left-handed to the stresses of, uh, you know, like the African-American population uh, or, or what that's like, like that level of the level of persecution, not the same. Let's be very, very clear. But nonetheless, that's real. It, it's, it's real. It's funny. What's funny about it is um, that it's also absolutely necessary. Like we, we are, we make up a, a small percentage of the population. So it's not like you can like have lefty, lefty rights. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. You know what the but do you know what the you know what the Latin word for left is? Writing that down, stealing it. No, I don't. Go on. Sinister. Oh, oh, what the fuck? You know what the left the Latin word for right is uh right-handed is dexterous. Holy buckets. So so dexterity means excellent right-handedness. And if you're ambidextrous, that means two right hands. Ah, so you just got rid of that shitty left hand. Uh, there right. are layers here. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it goes back forever and ever. Um, but when I was a kid, staying at uh, the Barrancos is when I realized I was left-handed because we were playing Atari. And when you play Atari, the button is on the upper left corner, and then you do the stick with your right hand. But I'm left-handed, so I wanted to do the stick with my left hand. But you can't just rotate the controller. Right. So then I ended up holding it like with my hand, my right hand wrapped around the front so I could get to the thumb. And in a very 80s term, uh, Ben looked over and said, like, why are you holding that like a sped? Oh, uh, Or no, 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 no. He didn't say sped. He said... Um, Palsy. There you go. There's the 80s term I'm referring to. By wow. the way, I, I know both of those are offensive. I would not use that. But that was the term that was used at the time, which made me go like, wait a minute, what? And like, look over and see how they're holding it. Look down at mine and then have that moment of like, why is this different? Yeah. And then realizing this is why all the pencils. I was like, why are, Why do the idiots at the pencil factory make all the pencils upside down? Uh, and now I understand because I'm holding it in the wrong hand. Um so uh, how did I get on left-handedness? God, I always I'm, end I'm up not getting... entirely sure I was going to ask you that. <laughs> but so you're staying with the Barrancos. That's right. I was staying at Ben's house because mom wouldn't come home. So there, there's a huge feeling of like abandonment, right? Like that we're not important enough. Mom won't come home, right? She's staying with Sheila in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as an adult, I can look back and say that was that behavior on her part was a bad move, right? Like she was scared for her daughter and she didn't want to leave. So that was an emotional response. Um, but she I don't think she imagined what the effect would be on myself and my brother for like having our parents not home, like her not coming home. So, uh, you know, I think that affected me quite a bit. And um you know, then them getting divorced uh, shortly thereafter, uh, I think had an impact on it. Uh, and then, you know, that's, that's, I, you know, kind of where I was, I, you know, p- kids find ways to blame themselves for their parents' divorce. And, um, 
you know, I, I'm very much like my father. And I think that that was hard on for mom. Um, you know, I'm more like, I think I'm more like dad than my, my siblings are in some regards. Uh, so we were always kind of at ends and we never got along well. School was hard. I did very bad in school all the time. I was never until an adulthood until, you know, college, I was always very bad at school. Um, I would test, you know, all through the roof on these Iowa basic skills things. Yep. And then I'd have to hear that shit about not fulfilling my potential. Yeah. Uh, which is just like, do you want to, you want to get in here? You want to drive this thing? You want to get, go ahead. Let me see what you can do without any goddamn dopamine in your frontal lobe. Let's see what you do with it. No steering wheel on this thing. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just feeling very out of control drugs made me feel not in control, but just cared less. And, um, and I do think like only in the last few years that I was able to accept or acknowledge that anxiety has been a companion. I didn't call it that. It's funny how you can just call it something different and therefore not know you have it. Like I called it stress. Yeah. I just called it stress. Like all my life, oh, I have stress. And I was so stressed about it, uh, uh, a uh, statistics course in my master's program that I want to talk to the teacher. And he's like, well, it sounds like he has, you know, this anxiety. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. yeah, stress. And he was like, this is like a, a doctorate level clinician too that i'm trying to explain you know no no it's not it's, and he's like no it's anxiety you have anxiety like this is anxiety and then again i was like oh okay so yeah i think for me drugs were a way out of that but you know obviously like so many of us that that spun out of control i have whatever personality tra trait is necessary for me to have a horrible relationship with chemicals i have it I want more. I want it all the time. I want as many as I can get. Uh, I want to go until I can't go anymore. You know, I, I would drink until I felt like I was going to throw up and then I would go stick my finger down my throat and drink more yeah. and then stick my finger down my throat and drink more. And um, like, that's apparently not normal. It's also not uncommon for, for people who you're speaking with right now. Right. And, and, you know, for a long time, I felt very much, again, like an imposter in early recovery. Like, you know, all I did was, mm. you know, this, you know, I, I never did heroin. I never did cocaine. Uh, ecstasy was barely even a thing uh, that, uh, you know, when I was using, it was, the, you know, the mid nineties. So, you know, I got clean when I was young. I was 20 years old. I only, I used for less than five years. I didn't do heroin. I didn't do cocaine. So it was super easy to exclude myself. It was super easy to minimize the situation. But the reality is the addiction was exacerbating other issues. The addiction was making the depression worse. It was making the ADHD worse. Um, it was making my, you know, self concept, my self-esteem worse. So I can only imagine how bad things had gotten if I had done, uh, you know, opioids or cocaine. I, I, honestly, with ADHD, a lot of people medicate ADHD with cocaine. Um, and so I'm lucky that I avoided that. But fortunately, I had seen some people just go completely off the rail. Ah, no pun intended. Uh, with uh, with cocaine that made me think like maybe I shouldn't do that. And I still had I still had like that just say no thing. And like even though I was doing these other things, there was part of me that was like, well, I'm not going to do that. Like that's a drug drug. I'm not going to do a drug drug. I'm not going to do like a I'm not going to do like a bad drug. This is I, I you know, pot is natural. It comes from the ground. It's which is funny because now as a counselor, I always tell people, well, yeah, so is fucking hemlock. All of this sort of feeds into like the uh, 
justification of that you that you have these Mickey Mouse problems right. that are that are considered normal, and that and that that in and of itself creates a barrier to getting help. How how did that happen to you at twenty years old? How did you arrive at sobriety so young? Um, so I do think it helps that I had been in counseling for years. It's safe to say that you know half of my life I've been in therapy. Well, if you count going to to meetings. My whole life, I have been in, I have been in, like been forced to to introspect my entire life, and so I think familiarity and willingness to do counseling helped. I think um, you know when I was institution, so I was institutionalized three times in, as a teenager for for depression and like suicidal stuff, and I liked it. You know, when I was a teenager, I loved the attention. I, I did like the attention. I liked being in there. I liked getting the help, and I and I liked doing the work. But uh, I, you know, was messing around with grain alcohol and I lit my head on fire because I was trying to see how much was left in the bottle. And I used a lighter and the fumes went off and I just torched my my head. And how old are you at that point? This is 20. This is 20. So, um, you know, and I had to go to the hospital and my old man, I was living at home at the time. And my old man was like, you know, hmm, hmm, suspicious. (laughs) Uh, Were were you alone when that went down? No, I was with friends. That's like my favorite story to tell is, you know, I'm I'm in this dude's house and this bottle goes off, right? My girlfriend at the time, my son's mom was sitting next to me and She's like whacking my face because my eyebrows holding the flame, you know, so she's like trying to put me out. And meanwhile, I'm thinking like, why is this bitch hitting me? Uh, you know, like I'm all in pain. I threw my back out. I fall back on the couch and and swear to God, true story. One dude in the room, uh, uh, this guy, Brian, uh, goes like, you know, like, oh, my God. Is he like, has, are you OK? Like, that's exactly what he said. Like, has, are you OK? And then this other douchebag in the other room goes, that was awesome. <laughs> So did the fire get put out? It 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 was very woomph. It was very like. Okay. By the way, that's exactly the noise. Like when they write it in a comic, that's exactly the noise. <laughs> it said it went woomph. It just kind of went shoof and just took it all. It just took it off. Like just one big quick blue wave. Wow. Blue. It was blue. Big big quick blue wave that kind of took it off. And I didn't have I didn't have a beard or anything at the time. I was you know I didn't have facial hair. Yeah. Um. But it melted. Um. And it, and it, you know, it, my, my, there was like a little flame on my eyebrow, apparently that caught. Uh, but outside of that, it was very quick. And then what happened was I had, um, I had melted my eye, like my eyelashes had melted. So they were like crispy, but they weren't disconnected. So they were just, they were like little Velcro hooks. And I had uh, third degree burns on the rims of my eyelid. So like these little hooks would like, like the next morning when I woke up, like my eye split open and it just like when I opened my eye, like it just like there was these little, there's these like these little like, like blisters, you know? Ah. Uh, and uh, boy, that hurt. And, you know, my face was all red. And, and, and I used to say like, I now looked on the outside, how I felt on the inside. Mm. Wow. That's poignant. Uh, I could not, like my addiction was very noticeable. Cause how do you explain this away? And dad had seen issues before that, but God bless him. Cause he said, you know, you, you're going to, you're going to go do an aval. And if, if you don't want to go, uh, you can ask yourself how much of your shit you can fit in that little red car of yours. And, um, you know, he's admitted since then in our later years that like, you know, he was all talk. Uh, but at the time it didn't feel like it. Like he, if it was a bluff, he played it very well. (laughs) Well, good for him. Yeah. I went, I went, I was honest and, um, yeah, I, I, I got into rehab, went to my first meeting, got my, uh, my zero day, 
uh, thing. Uh, I'm trying to trying to be vague because I don't want to like you know yeah announce membership in any particular fellowship. But uh, and then yeah, thing and on the rest. That's crazy. Well, it's great to hear the treatment was so successful in getting you on the path to recovery, and that was the same case for me. And I went to my rehab at Gateway Foundation in Aurora, Illinois. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work, and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free confidential consultation or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. For treatment for you, was it like 28, 35 days, something like that? Or It was 56 days. It was, uh, so apparently I had reached some sort of lifetime limit while I was there because I had been institutionalized a few times before. Yeah. Um, and so after a few weeks, they said like, you can't, but it was very swank. I went to a very nice rehab. It was uh, a professional program that had just opened to no- normal people. So it was a bunch of doctors and like some 18 year old blonde chick named Amanda and me. And I think we were their worst nightmare, uh, you know, because we were bouncing off the walls. But like we stayed at Four Lakes in Lyle. Like it was, and then we like drove into the PHP and they like, but we were staying in a, apartments. Like they had apartments we stayed in. And I stayed with like, you know, three other guys in this apartment. Um, but I fin I continued going to groups. I just had to live at home. Like I, it was, became like an IOP sort of okay. thing. Well, one, one thing that I'm wondering is, you know, you're institutionalized a few times and you, you suck up all the attention, you get drunk on that attention and then you're discharged and you have the hangover when you get out and things probably spiral right back to where they were before here. You do this, this 56 day treatment. How did you stick the landing? when you got out? That's a good question. Um, I I wasn't very far from my own stomping grounds the entire time I was in there. And there was a part of me that did very much want to, to not be m- me, like, or not be that way anymore. Because, you know, crying my eyes out on a, on a Tuesday night, listening to Counting Crows because I can't get a bag of weed was not my idea of existence, right? So I really did make a concerted effort to split from the people that I was around. I mean, I only had a couple of really good friends if I, you know, if I was being honest with myself, uh, I was still dating my, my son's mom at the time. Like we, we were together at the time um, that made it, I think a little easier because she was very supportive. She was worried about me, uh, but I do think that meetings were just a huge, like I, 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 you know, I will say like meetings saved my life. It rehab was important, but the meetings were huge. And, and not because I think like they have the secret message or like they're the only way, but they, they were the way for me. And it was filled with people who would just straight up tell you you're full of shit, mm-hmm. which I needed desperately. And that's why rehab worked too, by the way, because I think having all those older guys that couldn't stand me meant that they would just say things in group. 
You know, like that was the first time somebody told me to my face that I was an attention whore. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to hit him with a chair, but I embrace that now. You know, like, yeah, I am. That's that's true. Uh, <laughs> well, you can uh, leverage it now. Sure. Well, it's, you know, a, a character defect is only is a personality trait that's twisted into something bad. Right. So right. it's it, it's perfectly fine that I like the sound of my own voice. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, the first time somebody said that, of course, I wanted to hit him with a chair, but okay. <laughs> I do like the sound of my own voice, but as long as I am not, you know, dominating other people or making people listen to me just so I can hear myself or neglecting the needs of others, then it doesn't matter. That's fine. You know, well, I, I, I hesitate to do this as an aside, but I have to, I have to say that August and everything after might've been the best slash worst thing that ever happened to a whole lot of us. Do you find yourself drawn to artists like, like for me, I'll, I'll do the rundown. Blind Melon, Shannon Hoon, Elliot Smith, all these artists who are no longer with us. Do you find yourself drawn to, to artists who are miserable bastards or, or is it just me? So, yes. So, you know, uh, Bradley Knoll, mm. Kurt Cobain, uh, these guys were super important to me. But the one that I have always been most drawn to and, and continue to be drawn to because he made it is Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor. Yeah, uh, which is which that is the ultimate story of redemption, right? Yep. Yeah, and he he pulled it off and cuz I remember there was an interview uh with Al Jorgensen from Ministry back in the 90s on a tour bus where they were touring with 9 Inch Nails and Al Jorgensen said in an interview that Trent Reznor might be the most unhappy and miserable person he's ever met in his life. And, <laughs> and like I was like I remember thinking like dude's going to die. Like there's yeah. there's no way. And he listened to his music for Christ's sake. Yeah. Uh you know, pretty hate machine. Something I can never have was a song that I like I was straight up not allowed to listen to in the winter for a number of years. We're like yeah. just not allowed to listen to it. Um but uh, August and everything after. Funny enough, that's the only album from theirs that I really care about. Okay. Uh, but I have the exact same vocal range as Adam Duritz, mm -hmm. and I can sing every note of every song on August and everything after. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I loved it so much. Uh, but Round Here mm. was such and, and and Round Here in Perfect Blue Buildings. For those who don't know, Round Here is a song about being absolutely trapped in your existence and having just no idea of how to get out of like the porcelain fakeness of uh, of the of the day-to-day -day that you're doing and watching other people crumble around you and 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 arguably willingly taking advantage of those people as as it happens um a lot of that album is about that uh right so there's that perfect blue buildings is a song about someone utterly trapped in their addiction you know uh 4 30 a.m on a tuesday right doesn't get much worse than this yeah, uh, in beds and little rooms and buildings in the middle of this life, which is completely meaningless. Just such a such a powerful. Uh, there's so, there's a number of powerful songs on there, and then there's Rain King, which you know we all make mistakes. <laughs> just, a just a terrible song, it, which ends with him going, yeah! "You're like, why are you doing that? Don't do that. God, did somebody poke you in the, in the prostate? Oh my God, that's awesome. But anyways, um. So yeah, I, I, you know, I love singing. I love guitar. I love, uh, you know, creating. I've learned that creation makes me much happier than consumption. Mm -hmm. I have to relearn that over and over again when I spend hours playing No Man's Sky or, uh, you know, whatever, binging currently the boys. Uh, production always, always makes me happier than consumption. Yeah. And um, so whether that's journaling, working on the website, 
um, making YouTube videos. I love making. What's funny is that the YouTube videos are popular because I give zero shits when I make them. There's no quality at all. Yeah. It's just it's the, me and my Samsung. Oh, it's the authenticity, I think. It's yeah. The authenticity yeah. and accessibility. Hey, one thing I wanted to ask you, because I know you got you to gotta water the parkway, is... <laughs> well done well, i mean <laughs> i forgot all about it <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm here for you brother i i am your bullet journal um yeah. with, with your kids growing up and with you being in such a better place and taking care of yourself and stuff what is it like for you that they that they've never seen you with a drink in your hand and you know what, what is it like watching them with with their relationship i mean do the, do your kids have any relationship with with, with substances at all how has that played out I mean, I think they do, uh, but you know, they're smart enough not to tell me too much about it. Uh, but here's what I think I made is here's where I think I made a mistake that for, for parents who are in recovery, uh, you know, it's great that we're open about it. It's great that we share about it. But where I made the mistake is, is I think that I accidentally normalized uh, use drug use because no matter what I said about how bad things had gotten, mm. here I am sitting in front of them perfectly fine. Yeah. And they don't, so they don't know I'm an anomaly. They don't know that it is completely weird for a 44-year-old guy to have 24 years clean. I had just spoken with the uh, the executive director of the mental health board here in DeKalb County. We're trying to figure out how to build in more peer support for kids. And this is exactly what we were talking about, is that we can't figure out how the hell to do it. So you know, to, to get in with kids and not create a problem that otherwise previously didn't exist. So, t so tell me as a dad, you screwed up. How do I do it better? So, so don't talk about what you don't want them to do. Talk about what they like. Talk about, it's sort of like for years, recovery, you know, addictions treatment was always about relapse prevention, relapse prevention, which is just like yelling, don't think of cake. Yeah. It's stupid, right? Yes. Like it should be abstinence planning. What do you like? What worked when you were clean? What do you like to do? How do you like to spend your time? Not, not, whatever you do, don't do this, not uh, creating a vacuum, which makes people obsess about the thing, you know, they just want something they can never have, right? You know, Trent Reznor reference there. Ooh, nice callback. Way to drop that in there. Um, but, but focusing on the positive, like people who don't have addictions, who have children, who don't have addictions, they, they never sit around talking about heroin and how, you know, like, They'll say like drugs are bad, but anyways, come on, let's go to, let's go to ice skating practice. You know, like let's, that's what the emphasis is on. It's not on don't, 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 don't. Mm -hmm. I'm so scared my kids are going to use. What if they use? That's irrational. There's no reason to assume that they're going to. Um, and there's no reason to, uh, in, you know, accidentally encourage it. I, I am truly blessed and my life is truly unusual as a, as a, as a semicolon, right? As a recovering addict. As a, as a suicide survivor, as someone with mental health issues who's managed to get medicated, you know, the divorce rate for people with ADHD is in the high 80s, right? Like if you have a couple where one doesn't and one does have ADHD, high 80%. I've been married for, uh, you know, happily married for 18 years and I'm madly in love with Jenny and she's madly in love with me and we take good care of each other. I am so fortunate in so many ways, but they don't know that. All they see is that things are normal. They don't see that, you know, how bad things were, or how sick I was. And they don't see me when I'm crying with depression or, you know, we hide, we hide all the bad things from our kids, uh, you know, or they just don't see them because they weren't there for it. Uh, so they don't know that, that most people who have the experiences that I have are in worse shape than I'm in. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I think if I could go back and do it differently, 
I wouldn't talk about going to meetings all the time or how many people that I mentor or that I go and speak at, you know, at these other, you know, conventions. My kids heard me listening to a, a CD to send in to a convention and they heard people laughing in the background. And as much as I, I didn't want to break this illusion, I absolutely had to. They thought like they heard that. And for apparently for a few weeks before I corrected it, they thought I was famous. Yeah. Yeah. They thought I was like a comedian. My child just asked me this morning if, if I'm famous and I was like, no, absolutely not. Right. And, and you know what, that might be the worst thing that could ever happen to me. Like yeah. I, I, I don't know few things that I'm as certain of its toxicity as celebrity. Yeah. It's not necessarily a healthy thing, but yeah. So to answer the question, I think it's normalized normalcy don't normalize this foreboding, whatever you do, don't look in the closet. Yeah. Thing. Well, and, and you've got 22 years of sobriety on me. Four. And, oh, oh, okay. I was like, me. Hey man, yeah. don't short me. No, I, I, I didn't just, I didn't just relapse this morning, brother. Um, <laughs> I, uh, but I, I'm spoiled in the way that I figured this out pretty early on in sobriety is exactly what you're describing, where rather than always like peeking around the corner and looking over my shoulder, yes, I respect the addiction. I understand its power. I know my enemy, but I'm always trying to remain here and with my eyes forward rather than running from something terrible and a bad life. You know, I want to be focused on having discussions about how awesome things are and going forward without that asterisk. You know what I mean? And, and, and also without, because we talked about this the other day, also without shitting on yourself for whatever it is you thought you should have done for your kids when you were in your active addiction. It doesn't matter. It, that timeline doesn't exist, right? Like all the things we should have done, there's no point in shitting on ourselves. It's pointless, right? It does. It has no value. It creates unnecessary anxiety. It, it doesn't matter. We did We did the best we could with what we had. And now our option is to either do the best we can or fuck up our option to do the best we can because we're too busy fixating on how we didn't think we did the best we can before, which it's awful. You know, like that's, that's it's, there's no point in doing that. It's, it's, yeah, it's, you, you live in the moment, you move forward. You know, I used to always think that I would always identify myself first and foremost as an addict. Like that, that was who I am. This, you know, if somebody says, you know, what are you? I would say, well, I'm an addict, but I'm also these things. And, and, you know, that's not the case anymore. I am, I am uniquely me. There is no one else like me. Um, I, I stand out whether I want to or not. And that's fine. That's, it's, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Some people aren't going to like me. Some people are going to think I'm, I, I'm, I talk too much or I'm too hyper. Uh, that's fine. That's, they don't have to, mm -hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, the people that, the people that matter, matter and the people that don't, don't. So are you going to invoice me for this session then? Cause you've, you've given me a lot of help. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, as, as you celebrate 24 years now, like for a lot of guys, this, this, this day that you're celebrating now becomes as important as your birthday. Mm -hmm. Like for, for me, years one and two were like my 16th and 18th birthday. I mean, how, how special is it today? It's, it's 24. Like if, if you were turning literally 24 years old, that's sort of the beginning of the, wow, these, these aren't as special as they used to be. Like, what's today like? At, at For my 20th anniversary, I threw a huge party. Like, I rented out the pavilion at McCollum Park in Downers Grove, and I invited just every single person I knew, and I had a big old party. Um, you know, and there- Did Ryder Carroll respond? If, this is wait, this pre-Ryder Carroll. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, there's a guy in recovery who would always give me a hard time and be like, you know, you should be, you know, you're just doing what you were supposed to do in the first place, and, mm. and you know, don't make a big deal out of, out of your celebrating your clean time. And I was like- yeah, fuck that. I, I don't agree at all. I don't agree. You do at all. you, brother. Yeah, I busted my ass. 
Um, I, I have joked. I joke with people all the time on their birthdays. If they're in recovery, I'll be like, birthday, whatever. All you did is, re- you know, remember to breathe and dodge traffic for another year. Oh, so <laughs> show me some clean time. That's what I want to hear about. Uh, with love from Boston. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Like, I, I hope that was Chicago. And if I'm from Boston, I didn't know it. Um, but that's, yeah. I mean, to me, it's more important than birthdays just because, yeah, birthdays just happen. Like all you have to do is not die. Um, but it, it is much easier for me to stay clean now than it was once upon a time. Right. Like right. I, I've never had a legal drink in my entire life. Um, <laughs> I haven't so crazy. I, I, I have, I haven't had a drink since princess Diana died. Uh, you know, like it's been a very long time, uh, but that doesn't, that doesn't make me think it's that I'm safe. It doesn't, you know, like it would, it would add nothing. It would, it would contribute nothing. And fortunately, I'm still painfully aware, not painfully, but just very much aware uh, of why I want to use anything, which is, you know, I I never wanted to have a beverage in my entire life. That was never what I was doing, right? Like, I want to get straight fucked up. That's, that's why I drank. Uh, Yeah. I've never had a healthy relationship with alcohol. I've never had a mixed drink. The, the idea of spending time doing things with the alcohol before you ingest it seems absurd. Uh, you know, I've only got so much bandwidth. Come on. Let's yeah, you, what chance. are you going to do? You take your cigarettes and like cut them open and then re-roll them? Get the fuck out of here. Just, you know, I mean, like the, ridiculous. I, I was drinking grain alcohol with, with, with a sign on the side that said may cause blindness. That's, that was my level of relationship. With alcohol. Oh, oh yeah. Well, watch this. Let's yeah. Yeah. Try. We'll, we shall see. <laughs> so what are you going to do today? I mean, you, you came here and you celebrated with me and I'm eternally grateful for that, but what else are you guys going to do today? Anything? Well, Jenny's in San Diego with some family. So it's just me and the pups today. Uh, you know, Saturday night, I'm going to go and pick up uh, a thing at a, at a, <laughs> at a place. <laughs> Whoa. At, at a meeting, I'm going to go pick what? up a thing at a, uh, you know, oh, a, 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 okay. a, a, a coin chip thing at a, at a, at a place. You know, one of those meetings where people sit around and talk about stuff, uh, you know, 12 things. Uh, and then, uh, but you know, today I, uh, here's the thing today, I'm going to water the parkway and, and I'm going to go to work and, um, well, I'm going to go to my therapist, uh, and then I'm going to, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to meet, you know, see six or seven people and, and get to do the exact thing I always wanted to do, uh, for, for a job and just get to like really feel, uh, lucky, uh, to, to be able to do that. I don't think there's a better way to celebrate than to just be able to have my, the, the life that I'm living. And this, I mean, this is also a really big thing for, this is really cool. Like this is an exciting thing to do on my, on my clean date. It's a big deal. Oh, I appreciate that. I'm going to go ahead and ruin the moment. With arms wide open. <laughs> Turnabout is fair play, my friend. <laughs> you get motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Dude, this, this has been a riot. I appreciate yeah, it's it. been great. I'd love to, you know, if you ever want to do something like this again and uh, you know, I'd be happy to. And uh, I suppose, I suppose I'll listen to your podcast. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling I know which episode you're going to listen to. It it comes out, it comes out Tuesday. (laughs) Well, I'll definitely try to get other people to listen to it. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, I might, I might listen to it. Your, Your own episode, you mean? Uh, uh, yeah, I assume that's the one you're talking about. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah. It I, is. Might, yeah. I might listen to it. The others um, are the others are okay. Well, the mean, other ones are decent. Yeah, they have less. They have uh, less uh, less creed 
less cowbell, <laughs> less greed. They're a little more linear. We might say. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Like I, at one point during this interview, I was literally like, "How many things did we just leave in the dirt? Like did we just <laughs> stop talking about?" And yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we have, yeah, I was excited to talk to you about like seeing a therapist yourself because every therapist needs a therapist. But all this does is I'm going to go back and I'm going to edit it and I'm going to jot down things we haven't talked about yet. In a few months, a uh, few months from now, we'll, we'll get together and we'll keep, uh, we'll have another session. How about there, that? There you go. There you go. Absolutely. Because every podcaster needs a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Truer words have never been spoken. Yeah. Well, great. Listen, I appreciate you inviting me on here. It was very fun. <laughs> All right, brother. So, all right. Thanks again. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me on. All right. See you soon. Bye. See you. Bye. You made it. You made it. Congratulations. You emerged from the rabbit hole. What a trip that was, right? Definitely going to have to have Brian back on someday because, like he said, there are so many little things that we left on the cutting room floor that are so worthy of exploring. Can't wait to catch up with him again next Tuesday, June 29th. Join us on 40,000 Steps Radio. My friend Michelle Chestovich joins the podcast to talk about a tragedy that she suffered a few months ago when her baby sister, Gretchen, committed suicide. It's very heavy stuff, but I am heartened by the fact that Michelle is using this tragic opportunity to turn up the volume on suicide prevention awareness, and she's sharing her grief story and driving home the message that whether we're talking about grief or anger or jealousy, resentment, that we need to allow ourselves to feel all the feels. Thanks again to Brian Hazard for celebrating 24 years of sobriety with us. Until we have Michelle on in a couple of days, you can catch me on Instagram. My handle is at 40,000 underscore steps. Every Tuesday and Thursday morning, you can catch me there for a little IGTV talk at 8 a.m. Central Standard Time. So as you go forth and conquer, folks, just remember, if it feels like things are falling apart outside of here, outside of this space, right here, we are always coming together. Love you folks, and we'll talk to you soon. Peace.